Our epistle lesson today is found in Colossians chapter 3. We're reading verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, today we hear your command to seek your face, and it is your face that we seek, coming to hear your very words, the words of your mouth, words that are tried and true, words that are trustworthy, words that you speak. And so, God, we ask now that you send your spirit and that you give us ears to hear. You have sought us. Come and speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Joyce Ng was staying at the Marriott Hotel at 3 World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. The explosion of the first plane impacting the North Tower alerted her to something going very wrong that morning. The landing gear crashed into the roof of the hotel, setting it on fire, and she escaped onto the streets of southern Manhattan. She was running for her life when the second plane collides with the southern tower and debris begins to be showered all around her. She's one of the fortunate ones to escape. Roughly 33,000 people in number escaped death that, that day. But over the past 20 years, that community of survivors has had an interesting experience. Many have documented it in different interviews and writings, books and articles. Joyce is one of the ones who has written extensively about her experience. And one of the things that she notes is repeatedly being told, you should forget about this and put it behind you. She writes that she's not found a lot of sympathy for the lifelong trauma of a survivor of something like she went through. She lives with an odd mixture of grief and gratitude, of denial and a desire to serve other people, and she struggles to sort it all out. But the one thing that she has agreed about with all the other survivors is that this cannot simply be forgotten. You don't simply move past it. And on the 20th anniversary, she went to Ground Zero, and there she was with a large community of people. As she walked around, she was asked the question, whom did you lose on September 11th? And she gave a very poignant and rather profound answer, simple. She said, I lost part of myself. Some part of me that day died. And there's something new on the other side, but I lost part of myself. And Joyce is not alone. The community of survivors oftentimes uses language of dying and also finding a new birth on the other side of this really traumatic event. An event in their lives, an event in our nation's life that changed everything. Nothing would be the same on the other side of that. 
And it's really helpful for us to reflect upon the dramatic nature of narratives like Joyce's. We, of course, want to be sympathetic and understanding of those who go through traumatic things like this and appreciate the difficulties of those who survive. But also from a completely different angle, it's interesting to listen to the narrative, to listen to a narrative of an event, a traumatic event that totally changes and alters the shape of someone's life, and then to once again consider the words of Scripture, the words that come from the very mouth of God about salvation. Because the way the Apostle Paul describes salvation, as we hear it today, it speaks of a dramatic, a traumatic event. An event that involves death and an event that involves resurrection. And it's all too easy for us in the church to become comfortable with this type of language. And we think of salvation as a warm, heart-moving experience. And while it may be that, what we hear today in Colossians 3, in these first four verses, is of something dramatic. An event that happens, that changes and alters and redirects your life and my life and takes it in an entirely new way. And so what's important for us in arriving at these verses is to slow down, to look at these four verses and to reconsider our salvation and everything that Jesus promises to deliver to us. As we do so, we'll see three things about this life of salvation. First, we'll consider its basis. Second, we'll see also our duty, the duty of salvation, and third, will consider its fruition, the fruition of that salvation. So let's look at each of those briefly in turn. First, we see the basis of our salvation. Paul begins in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ. And then once again, he picks up this logic in verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's important for us to note this because we've seen this language before in Colossians, speaking of the death and the resurrection of the believer that has taken place already in this life. Please note that he's not talking about something that is ahead right now. He is talking about something that is behind us. If you then have been raised, if you died, past tense, history, something that we look back on. And then he draws us into the basis of this death and this resurrection. You'll note that he says how this happens. If then you have been raised with Christ. And friends, this is drawing our attention that when we place our faith in Jesus, that we share in his death and we share in his resurrection. That what is true of the Son of God becomes true of us. The one who gave himself in our place, the one who was vindicated and raised, the one who is now seated in the heavenly courts at God's right hand, that we are now with him. And he has died our death, he has been raised, and we now share new life in him. 
And so, friends, we see the profound statement that this is not based on our feelings. It's not based on how we think we're experiencing things. That this is simply an objective reality. For those who have believed in Jesus, this is how God counts us and considers us. That we have died and we have been raised. An event has taken place that dramatically alters and changes everything about our life in this world. And what we find here, though, is Paul then taking this statement one step further because he mentions that this Jesus is seated at God's right hand. He goes to great lengths, actually, in the original grammar to make the point. And so he's emphasizing that Jesus, who rose as a physical body in the flesh, ascended also in the flesh, in the heavenly places. Jesus has not forsaken that physical body now. But no, he is there, physical, resurrected, in a glorified body at God's right hand. This is the one who offered himself in our place, and he has taken up that place of preeminence. Now at the right hand of God, where he does several things, we note that he rules over the world, but also significantly, the focus here in these verses is that he is the one who mediates for us. And friends, this is where Paul is bringing us into the basis of our salvation, why our salvation is secure, and why we have a standing with God. And it is because there is a perfect human being in the presence of God the Father who has uninterrupted communion with him. And friends, that is why God can permit you into the heavenly places. That is why you can commune with God. It is why you can know God. And there's only one basis and one grounds of that happening, is that Jesus has taken humanity into the presence of God. And then in and through him, we can share in that communion. It's actually quite beautiful and stunning to recognize the links that God has gone to in order to bring us into relationship with himself. But this is the basis and the grounds the one who came and died our death, suffering for our sins, offering himself, being raised, and now ascended and at God's right hand, mediating on our behalf. This is the basis. And we see also that Paul then says that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, you can think of all kinds of reasons that you hide things. In the Colson household, we have to hide snacks. We have, we, we, we have to hide the goodies because they tend to disappear with great rapidity. Uh, and so they have to be hidden. They have to be concealed. They have to be kept safe in order to be rationed. But friends, when Paul writes that we're, our life is hidden with Christ in God, he's speaking of something being hidden so that it be, can be kept secure, so that it can be kept safe. And this speaks to us of just how secure we are in him. Because this salvation, nothing about it is predicated upon your performance. Nothing is predicated upon your achievement. Nothing is predicated on what you add to it. 
the spiritual disciplines that you practice. Nothing about this salvation is built on that. It lies on the sure ground of Jesus, someone who achieves salvation for us, the gift of another accomplished on our behalf. This is the basis and grounds, and we're hidden in this Christ, held in him. And so we have a status and we have a standing with God only because of him. Last year, when the boys and I were in Switzerland and we had the opportunity to hike on the Europaweg Trail, it's a beautiful, what they call a shelf trail up above the mountain valley, some several thousand feet below. And we were making our way from a small village called the Tash Alp to another village called Rhonda. And along the way of the trail, we didn't know everything that we were going to encounter, but we crossed a very significant avalanche zone. And so being kind of the stupid Americans, here we are going, what is all this, you know? Clear evidence of multiple and many avalanches that had happened over hundreds of years. And then we began to notice that there were shelters. Shelters cut into the side of the mountain. And then you see a sign, it said something like this, enter here in case of avalanche. Now, <laughs> The Swiss are kind of like known for understatement and brevity. And it, it kind of struck me, you know, if an avalanche is happening, I sure hope I'm close <laughs> to, to this particular hole in the ground. But when you looked at the particular hole, there is this, this pipe encased in loads of cement. And there it is buried into the side of the mountain. And it's a shelter. It's a refuge. It's a place to hide in the case of incredible chaos going on. And friends, that's what our Lord Jesus is for us, a place to be hidden amidst the chaos of our own sin and our own rebellion, our own turning against God and the chaos of the world that we have unleashed in turning against God, hidden in Christ. This is where we have, what we have entered into and we're safe and we're secure in him. And so this is the basis of salvation. Simply put, Jesus. Second here, we also see the duty of our salvation. Now that language may sound strange to you. How can you say that we have a basis and that basis is none other than Jesus and then to say that there are duties, something incumbent upon us to do, wait before you cast judgment. There are two imperatives that follow if then you have been raised with Christ, the first imperative, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Second imperative, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so the two commands that we receive is that we are to seek and we are to set we're to seek the things above and we're to set our minds on the things above. Now, this doesn't mean just to think happy thoughts. Okay? It's not to fill your, your, your mind with memes from Hallmark. We're told explicitly to set our minds on the heavens. And we are told what occupies the heavens even in these verses. 
And what occupies the heavens is our Lord Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God. And also this language of seeking the things above is specifically in contrast to the things that are on the earth. And you'll remember that that term earth and referring to things below has already appeared in this letter, specifically two times in chapter 2, where we are warned about those earthly principles of the false teachers. And what they were encouraging was a means of communing with God that involved ascetic disciplines, spiritual disciplines, by which the use of those disciplines, you could gain a flight out of this world into God's presence and to enjoy an ecstasy and communion with God. This is what they were teaching. And so the Apostle Paul's response is very interesting for us and is significant for us to understand. Because he's saying there that no, you have a duty to seek after the one who is above. The one who secures your communion with God. You don't need these spiritual disciplines to give you a flight into the heavens. You're not awaiting a status. You're not awaiting a standing. The gospel says that you already have it. That it belongs to you. So don't cheapen it. And don't lose it. Hold fast to it. It belongs to you in Jesus. And so the duty of salvation here is to resist the false teachers. Those who would try to supplement the gospel and to add something else. That if you really want to gin up your communion with God, you need this or you need that. No, Paul is arguing you have everything you need. That Jesus is the one sufficient. That Jesus is the one who supplies. That Jesus is the one who provides. And when we turn our attention to an attempt to ascend into the heavens, Paul is saying that you're being earthly minded. We're to seek and set our minds on the things above. That is, we're to focus our hearts on Christ. Focus our hearts on his accomplishments on our behalf through death and resurrection and in his ascended humanity. All that belongs to us, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, everything that flows from this fount and overflows to you. What it means to be adopted sons and daughters. And so the commands to seek and to set our minds are not invitations to strive for heavenly status but rather it's an invitation to enjoy the heavenly status you've already received from the one who sits resting and reigning and ruling over all and mediating on our behalf. And so we're commanded to focus on what's given. We're to take up what is properly ours in the Son. He is the Son by nature and by right. You are the sons and daughters by gift. And God is today calling us to take up that gift, to enjoy it, and to allow no one to cheapen it or to denigrate it or to take it away. Everything you need lies in him. And finally, also in these verses, we see the fruition of our salvation. If you follow with me in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. It's interesting, he moves from the language of being hidden and concealed 
to something now being revealed in the end, and he is looking to something future. We've mentioned that in some certain ways, we have died with Christ and been raised with him. That as a Christian, we can say that this has happened. But also, there is a future aspect to this as well. That everything we have as Christians, we do not currently possess. It belongs to us, but everything that we have as the sons and daughters of God is not currently in our possession. And so he speaks of this future that uh, Christ will return, that he will appear, and that we will then appear with him in glory. When he says that we will appear with him in glory, he speaks of the manner of what our bodies will be. They will be glorified like that body of our Lord Jesus. That is, will no longer be subject to corruption and to decay and to the futility of the world. And friends, this is the decisive kind of edge of Christianity that deserves our focus and attention. Living in Western culture and society, we've been trained. We've been trained and directed to think about the present tense, to think about immediate concerns. And we're prone to relate to the Christian faith in much the same way, to be focused upon what we have in Jesus today. And it's important to know what you have in Jesus today. You need to meditate upon that, and you need to reflect on it, and you need to own it. But also, if all you have is what you have in Jesus today, you have an eighth of the gospel. Because there is this decisive future edge pointing us to a horizon that when our Lord Jesus appears, something that has been concealed will reach full manifestation, full revelation, and that will share with him in glory that his resurrected body, that we will be raised in his likeness to share in a real physical world where we commune with God face to face. Yes, today we see in part, Paul says, in a mirror, and we see dimly. But then on that day, at that appearance, we will know fully as we have been fully known, that today we know grief and we know sadness. But then on that day, the grief and the sadness will melt away and it will be forgotten. We're told that there will be no more sea. And this just means that evil itself will be judged and removed. Today, we're fickle and frail. We have hearts that struggle and limp along in obedience. We're staggering with those divided hearts. But then on that day, our hearts will be free from all the stain and the pollution of sin. Today we have diseases and today we have disorders. Today we have death. These diseases and disorders eat away at our bodies and our minds. But then on that day, we will have glorified bodies, free from decay and free from dissolution. Friends, this is that future orientation of the Christian faith. That yes, we have many gifts from God in his son Jesus that are ours. They belong to us. But the full possession of all the rights of the children of God is yet to come. And it is in that glorious inheritance of resurrection and the remaking of the world 
That is the future edge in which we are to hope and to long for. And so the present just isn't enough. We need all the tenses of looking back to the past, knowing what has been secured for us through Jesus and his accomplishment for us. Looking back at the past at that traumatic event of conversion in which we have died and been raised to new life. Looking to the present and knowing that we are infused with life through our Lord Jesus as we look to him in faith. And looking to the future and knowing all that is ours and that it's certain because you're hidden in him. And what is hidden, what has been concealed by God will be revealed. It will be manifested. It will be made known publicly, broadly available. And so we have this traumatic event, ongoing implications. You have died. You have been raised. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Friends, these are the gifts of the gospel for us. And it changes everything. Don't miss all that is yours, all that has been invested and all that has been given to us because of Jesus. Let's ask for his help to set our minds on him and all that he gives. Let's pray. Father, we confess that so often we're small-minded and we're forgetful and we underestimate all that you've done. We lose sight of it. But here today, you expose us to the expanse, the great inheritance of everything that Jesus has done, that he in his resurrected body mediates for us hides us in your presence. We're safe and secure in him and we await an inheritance. An inheritance on that day when death will be destroyed. Sins will be no more and that the world will be made right. Set our hopes on these things. Free us and set our minds on things above. We pray in Jesus' name.